And just a couple words from one of our sponsors. Please to introduce Brett Newman. Brett has been a loyal CTLA sponsor for many years. Many of us have used him. He's a great guy and he's great with the clean field structured settlement. And let me turn it over to you, Brett. You can describe it better than I can. Newman Settlement Services Group began with the simple idea that plaintiffs and their attorneys should have one place to go to obtain the assistance with many parts of the settlement process. A comprehensive settlement services include Medicare and Medicaid lien resolution, Medicare care set-aside allocation and administration, special needs trust administration, health benefit protection planning, MSP compliance, wealth management, and most importantly, providing financial security through structured settlements. We find that most firms choose Newman Settlement Services Group because we can help many different issues surrounding the financial and benefit side of the settlement process. You know, we take an individualized approach with the understanding that each case and claimant is different and therefore has a different set of needs and desires. In regards to experience, you can rely on TNSSG for very honest and practical advice to help secure your claimant's future. All of our settlement consultants have at least 20 years of experience, which is the reason why many of the nation's most highly respected law firms recommend us as their litigation resource group. We're founded on the principles of honesty and competence and patience. Our team of professionals specialize in streamlining post-settlement process that results in faster cash flow and proper claimant expectations. If you'd like to contact us, our website is tnssg.com. Thank you, Brett. And thank you for sponsoring this podcast. Now to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Pod Ipsa Locator, the podcast for Connecticut trial attorneys by Connecticut trial attorneys with your hosts, John Kennedy and Mike Walsh. Hello, and welcome to the CTLA broadcast of Pod Ipse Locator. It's produced by the Connecticut Trial Lawyers Association, the CLE Committee, which stands for Continuing Legal Education. My name is Mike Walsh, and I'm a co-host along with John Kennedy. And we have a really exciting episode for you today on the issue of uh, constitutional law. And I don't think it could be any more timely than it is, given everything that's going on with our Supreme Court right now. So, John, let me turn it over to you for the introduction of our special guest. Our special guest today is somebody who's uh, a terrific guest for what we're going to discuss. Uh, Richard H. Fallon, I know him as Dick from our callow youth, is the Harvard Law School professor. He focuses on constitutional law. He's currently the story professor of law at Harvard Law and also an affiliate professor in the government department of Harvard. He's a graduate of Yale University, 1975, and Yale Law School, 1980. He also received a, a degree from Oxford as he was a Rhodes Scholar. He served as law clerk to Judge J. Skelly Wright and then to Justice Lewis F. Powell of the U.S. Supreme Court. He's written extensively about issues involving constitutional law, including uh, the dynamic constitution, which I told him I bought a copy of this week, and I'm sure he's happy about that. He's also been the co-editor of a number of textbooks about constitutional law and the federal courts. I think what he's most proud of, though, he told me earlier this week, is not his uh, writings or his status as a Harvard law professor, but the fact that he's won a number on a number of occasions the teaching award at Harvard, and he really takes that seriously, and I'm hoping that we're going to learn something from him today. And I'm going to start out by just asking you a very very broad question, Dick, and that is we're probably a few weeks away, a couple of weeks away from the hearings uh, on the appointment of 
Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. It appears that the Republicans have the votes to have the, her nomination approved, although we'll see what happens. I want to start off by asking you how her addition to the court and her judicial philosophy, and maybe you can explain to us a little bit about her philosophy, how that will affect the balance of power on the court and what we can expect going forward. Well, thank you very much, uh, John. It's a great pleasure to be here. I always like being reminded of my callow youth, uh, <laughs> more and more distant as it seems over time. So I've been uh, teaching constitutional law, thinking about constitutional law for a very long time, 40 years uh, or so. And as I look back over those 40 years, I graduated from law school in 1980. One of the things that seems very, very striking in retrospect is that people always would have said that the Supreme Court consisted of five conservatives and four liberals. And over time, I think the conservatives have got more conservative. So it's not that nothing has changed over time. But remarkably, people always would have said that there was a 5-4 uh, division. And so for the so-called liberals to win a big case, they had to pick off one conservative. And over what people would have thought as a number of big cases uh, over those years, the liberals with quite considerable frequency managed to pick off one conservative. So people thought the Supreme Court was going to kill affirmative action. But no, the liberals picked off Justice O'Connor. And there were a number of big cases involving gay rights, and the liberals picked off Justice Kennedy. So that although we've had a long time with a 5-4 conservative majority, conservatives, political conservatives in the United States have never really been all that much happier with the Supreme Court than the liberal. Here is what the nomination and expected confirmation of Judge Barrett is going to do. It is overwhelmingly likely to give the conservatives a solid 6-3 majority in order to prevail on any major issue that divides liberals and conservatives. The liberals would need to pick off two. Uh, that is not very likely to happen. I think we are on the cusp uh, of having the most consistently conservative Supreme Court uh, that we've had in the roughly 40 years that I've been paying close attention. And I could tell you a little bit more about what that means, but maybe it would be nice for the flow of your program if you uh, or Mike asks another question. Uh, Dick, I've got a question, and it's kind of following up along those lines. Does the court as an institution have to be concerned if on many issues it finds itself essentially going against the majority of the people? In other words, you know, it seems like with a very conservative court, they could reach conclusion after conclusion that really is not consistent with the way the majority of Americans feel on issues. And I'm just wondering if that could actually erode the reputation of the court and have a long-term effect. Yeah, I think it could uh, erode the reputation of the court and could potentially have a long-term effect. But the other side of the coin here, and I think that this is really important to keep in mind, is that at any particular time when the justices of the Supreme Court are holding something unconstitutional, it's likely to be something that a majority of the country thought ought to be permitted or allowed. 
and justices of the Supreme Court who are holding legislation unconstitutional would say it's precisely our job to do things that the majority of the country doesn't like right now because our job is not to be a register of public opinion. We've got presidents, governors, members of Congress to do that. Um, our job is to stand up for constitutional values. And this is a position that cuts both ways, sometimes Gore's liberal oxes, sometimes Gore's conservative oxes. But in you know, some of the most famous Supreme Court decisions ever, what the Supreme Court was doing was to invalidate laws that a majority of the country wanted. And the Supreme Court would say, uh, no, under the First Amendment to the Constitution, people have a constitutional right to say that they support communism. And in the 1950s, people were absolutely passionately outraged about this. And did the court take a reputational hit? Yeah, in the short term. But I think it would just be a mistake to say that the Supreme Court should be watching newspaper headlines, reading public opinion polls, taking its marching orders from the American people. If the court goes in a strongly conservative direction, I'm not going to like it. But the reason that I'm not going to like it is not because the court is doing something that a majority of the people disapprove of. Sometimes that is absolutely the court's job. Yeah, Dick, I wanted to ask you a question about Amy Coney Barrett's philosophical approach to the law. As I understand it, she's a disciple of Justice Scalia, and she believes in originalism, and that, and she's a textualist. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. I know that you have a somewhat different view of the Constitution, having looked at your book about the dynamic Constitution. And I wonder if you could talk about that and about how you see that philosophical view and how it will play out. Right. So Justice Scalia, I should uh, say, was one of the great, great figures in the history of the Supreme Court. I disagreed with Justice Scalia about very many things, but he was a hugely powerful intellect. And he had a really charismatic personal style and a kind of charisma that even echoed through into his writing. Anybody who took the trouble to read Scalia opinions was uh, engaged by his prose and wanted to struggle with his ideas. But Scalia was famously associated with two closely related but a little bit distinct ideas, one involving constitutional interpretation and the other involving statutory interpretation. With respect to constitutional interpretation, Scalia said that he was an originalist. And by that, he meant that he believed courts should decide cases in accordance with the original meaning of the Constitution, mostly as it would have been understood by people living at the time. And then with respect to statutory interpretation, Justice Scalia said that he was a textualist, by which he meant that people interpreting federal statutes shouldn't be paying attention to legislative history or knowing exactly what members of Congress hoped they were going to achieve when they uh, enacted a statute, but just read the words of the law and try to understand what those words would mean 
to a fair-minded person. So Judge Barrett, she becomes uh, Justice Barrett, uh, has said that she will, like Scalia, be an originalist and a textualist. With respect to constitutional interpretation, the Constitution, most of the words of the Constitution were written uh, more than 200 years ago by people living in a completely different world with a completely different set of expectations, including a completely different set of expectations about what the government would do. And originalists pretty consistently come down on the side of the conclusion uh, that the powers of the federal government are really pretty sharply limited. Federal government doesn't have powers that a number of people today would think that it ought to have, for example, to require people to buy health insurance. So different world, different set of expectations. Originalists tend to have views that pretty much align with conservative preferences with respect to a number of matters of constitutional interpretation. People were not, uh, at the time that the due process clause was put into the constitution, understanding it as banning abortion. And then with respect to textualism, once again, conservatives generally think that liberal courts have gone amok by reading vague statutory language in light of what they think Congress's goals or purposes were and using statutory interpretation as a way to push the law in a liberal direction. So once again, conservatives tend to think that textualism will usually, not always, but usually help them get to conclusions that they want with respect to statutory interpretation. I should say in fairness that Somebody like Judge Barrett, who is an originalist and a textualist, would say, I may be a conservative person, but my originalism and my textualism don't have anything to do with my conservative values. And so occasionally you will find, as we saw just this past summer, famous and controversial decision, an originalist textualist justice, Neil Gorsuch, joining with the court's liberal wing to hold that a federal statute that prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex bars discrimination against people on the basis of their sexual orientation. So usually these views tend to line up originalism and textualism with conservative preferences, principled originalists and textualists would say that's really mostly just an accident and it doesn't always work that way. Look, for example, uh, at the recent gay rights decision reading the Civil Rights Act as forbidding discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Dick, we're about to go into a a nomination period, and or not a nomination or a confirmation period, I should say. And in the past 20, 30 years, it seems like this whole process has gotten really, really, you know, starting with Bork, that's the first one I can remember. But so many of, of these uh, confirmation hearings have just turned into really, really ugly, politicized fights. What effect do you think that has on the soon-to-be justice? And do you think it has any rollover effect 
in the later year. I mean, they're humans. I know they're scholars and all the rest, but they are humans. And do you think that has a destructive effect on, on them as they get onto the bench? I don't know if I would use a word as strong as destructive, yeah. <laughs> uh, but there is something deeply disturbing here. And what I'm about to say involves claims about social dynamics that I've never experienced from the, from the inside. And so I can't be sure that I'm right. And you can take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. But I think at one point, people were nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court. And in one sense, to a remarkable extent, they lived in a legal bubble associated with each other, talking to, arguing with each other, getting a lot of their information from media and intellectual elites who at times in the past were mostly viewed as being pretty much down the middle, not ideological, people disinterested expertise. And so I think that was the milieu that justices uh, inhabited and whatever views they might have brought with them when they came to the Supreme Court. I think there was likely to be an element of flexibility and adaptability that just went with being a smart, attentive lawyer, paying attention to arguments where they've got to stand up for their own views and there's no cheering section. I think today we live in a political and intellectual world that is so politicized that justices come on to the Supreme Court rooted there by a cheering section on the liberal or the conservative side, the Federalist Society being most famous on the conservative side. And once they get on the court, they continue to interact with people who are part of a one or another ideological coalition, liberal or conservative Federalist Society, or the, there's a liberal American Constitution Society that wishes it had the clout of the Federalist uh, Society. And so I think the justices in this politicized climate tend to inhabit a world in which they can listen to people who agree with them rather than people who disagree with them if they want to. They know that there is a cohort out there cheering for the conservative team or the liberal team uh, in the way that there might be a cohort cheering for a sports franchise. And I think there probably has to be some natural psychological dynamic not to want to let the team down. Now, I tried to describe what I called a natural psychological dynamic. Do I think the justices of the Supreme Court view their job that way? No. Do I think they think they are playing it straight down the middle, just the law, only the law? Yeah, I think that they do. But they're human beings. We're all psychologically complex. And I think from my perspective, the world in which they get confirmed is a less healthy world from the perspective of the reasonably disinterested pursuit of justice than the world that justices were nominated in and confirmed into a few decades ago. Interesting. In the context of what you just answered to Mike, Dick, one of the things that's come up in my research about Amy Coney Barrett is that 
she wrote an article, a law review article back in 1998 about capital punishment, suggesting that Catholic judges in certain circumstances should either accuse themselves or not participate in cases concerning that kind of a subject. I would imagine that she's going to be asked about that law review article and in the context of a future ruling on the issues of abortion. The larger question is, what does the background and belief systems of the justices play, role does it play in terms of their qualifications or their ability to decide cases on these kinds of issues? So we have a very, very old constitution, mostly written in very, very vague language. The First Amendment says Congress shall enact no law abridging the freedom of speech. So what's the freedom of speech? Is it the freedom of corporations to try to influence elections through running advertisements on television? We've got a clause guaranteeing the equal protection of the laws. What does that mean? Does that protect gays and lesbians against discrimination? Very vague language. Congress has power to regulate interstate commerce. What exactly does that mean? So when we've got this very vague language, almost inevitably, justices' views about what would be the best way to understand the language and the cases has some influence, some subtle influence in some way on the way they think. Otherwise, we couldn't talk about liberal and conservative justices. And if somebody wants to say, I don't know what you mean when you talk about liberal and conservative justices, there's no such thing, they're all just justices, then somebody who says that is just deluded. So judges' views affect how they decide cases. With respect to abortion, I think abortion is one of those uh, subjects that everybody's got some sort of an opinion about. And I think if everybody were disqualified from every justice of the Supreme Court from participating in any case involving a morally freighted issue or a constitutional issue with moral implications in a context in which he or she has moral views, then we disqualify everybody and we would end up not with a Supreme Court competent to decide the issues that we expect them to decide. And so I don't expect she will recuse herself from abortion cases. I don't think she should recuse herself from abortion cases any more than some justice who on the other side believes that it would be profoundly immoral to deny a woman the right to make a fundamental choice about what happens with her own body should have to disqualify himself or herself. I think capital punishment may be a little bit more complicated. I expect this is what Judge Barrett would say, because there is language in the Constitution that even for somebody who thinks capital punishment is immoral and wrong, the language makes it hard to come to the conclusion that the Constitution forbids capital punishment. And then she may think that she or some other uh, judge or justice may think that he or she is just 
too conflicted to be capable of doing case-by-case justice. But I don't think that, to, to return to where I started, I think that would be the unusual case rather than the normal case, uh, if that is the case, where judge or justice ought to recuse him or herself. And mostly, justices who are Catholics have not felt that they had to recuse themselves in capital punishment cases or abortion cases. They felt that they could do impartial justice. And I think we just have, once they're confirmed, we just have to trust them on that point. Dick, as you know, right now, the Democrats feel very oppressed because when Justice uh, Scalia died and President Obama nominated Merrick Garland, the Republicans refused to have a hearing because they said it was an election year. Now, this was in February, okay? And now, sure enough, Justice Ginsburg passed away, and she passed away in September, and the Republicans have nominated somebody, and their previous position apparently no longer holds. So in return, if the Democrats succeed in the upcoming election, there's a suggestion that maybe they will add two justices, or some number of justices, to the Supreme Court. So I just want to get ask you, as a person who's really studied this Supreme Court his whole life. What are your thoughts about the possibility of two new justices being added to the Supreme Court? Right. So if I, I can, Mike, I would like to act as if you had asked me two questions, and I will try to answer them uh, in sequence. The first question is, I'm going to construe what you said, is what do I think about the performance of Mitch McConnell, for uh, example, <laughs> when when Scalia dies, he says we can't confirm a justice to the Supreme Court, even though Scalia died in February, because it's too close to an election and the next president should get to nominate the successor. And then when Justice Ginsburg dies much closer to an election, he says, uh, no, we've got the votes, essentially. And if we've got the votes, we're going to put through a conservative nominee. So this is a general comment about the Constitution. The Constitution is a very short document. It has worked as well as it has over so many years. Hasn't been perfect, but it's worked as well as it has, and it has worked well, largely because around the Constitution, there grew up a set of what people sometimes refer to as norms. We just understand that there is a fair and accepted way to deal with matters that aren't written down in the Constitution. Courts don't necessarily enforce them, but there are certain things presidents wouldn't do because we've come to understand how presidents ought to behave. There are certain things that members of Congress wouldn't do because we've come to understand how members of Congress ought to behave. It's, in my opinion, uh, one of the things that's absolutely terrifying about our current situation that leaders in the executive branch and in Congress are so willing to override traditional norms or understandings of fair play, fair dealing. And so I think when you put together what happened with first Merrick Garland and now the Barrett uh, nomination, what we see is an outrage. So then it would be a second question, is court packing an appropriate response? So nothing in the Constitution says that there have to be nine justices of the Supreme Court. Uh, At different times, there have been as few as five and as many as 10. And during the era of Civil War and Reconstruction, the number was deliberately manipulated, what we today would call court packing, for political purposes. In the aftermath of the Civil War, a 
Republican Reconstruction Congress didn't want Andrew Johnson to have any appointments to the Supreme Court. So they shrank the size of the Supreme Court. And then Ulysses Grant, a good Republican, gets elected president. And so the Supreme Court expands the size of the Supreme Court so that Grant will get two new appointees to the Supreme Court. That's when we went to 10. Since then, shortly after that, the Supreme Court was shrunk back down to nine. It's been nine for better part of 150 years. It's a norm that people don't tinker with the size of the Supreme Court. If that norm is shattered, you remember I told you I'm worried about how we operate in this country if norms of fair dealing and appropriate conduct get trampled on. So if if there were the votes, it would be perfectly constitutional to pack the Supreme Court. My hope would be that the Democrats would not try that immediately and that they would wait and see how desperately bad <laughs> our conservative Supreme Court made it for progressive administrations if the Democrats can keep winning elections and if it got desperately bad uh, and the Democrats could keep winning uh, elections, then maybe so. But what's terrifying for is the collapse of norms and the prospect of tit for tat. Democrats, imagine the Democrats expand the size of the Supreme Court by two. At that point, the Republicans hold a 6-5 majority anyway. The conservatives hold a 6-5 majority. So imagine the Democrats say, well, that's no good. So let's expand it to 13. And then we'll have a majority. But if the Republicans win the next election, then what if they say, well, tit for tat, the Democrats went to 13, we'll go to 15 and get our majority back. And then we're just down a pathway to disaster. It, it, so, it's a sad situation, maybe no good way out of it. But I personally would be disappointed if the Democrats rushed into court packing. And it seems to me you talk about we, they, we want to see how the court behaves and, and decides things. And there are a lot of big issues coming up. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Just this week, I saw that uh, Justice Alito and Justice Thomas were already talking about the Obergefell gay marriage decision. And we know that the abortion decisions are likely to come before the court. And there's a case, as I understand it, a couple of weeks from argument about the ACA. Can you tell us how you think things are going to, can you give us a prediction as to how things will go or is that too difficult to tell at this point? Yeah, so the, the, uh, about some of these things, it is uh, it is certainly too difficult to tell, but let me deal with a few, because it's certainly a fair question. Yeah, the, the, the um, so, obvious ones, abortion, yeah. religious liberty cases, right? elections right. issues, we've got a lot of things coming up quickly. Yeah, no, we, we certainly do. So the first thing you asked about was the Affordable Care Act. The question in the Affordable Care Act case is a really technical legal question about whether when the Congress of the United States repealed the individual mandate, it somehow removed so central a piece of the Affordable Care Act that was passed a decade ago, better part of a decade ago, that the whole thing had to crumble now on the ground that the Congress that enacted the original Affordable Care Act wouldn't have wanted 
the original Affordable Care Act to continue in operation if the individual mandate weren't a part of it. Uh, I think that ought to lose, that argument ought to, to lose. I will be disappointed if it doesn't lose, disappointed, doing my level best to be a disinterested reader of the Constitution rather than a partisan here. A number of prominent conservative lawyers have said that, but I expect it'll be a close vote on the on the Supreme Court. I don't know about that. At some point, the Supreme Court will be asked relatively soon to overrule Roe against Wade. I don't know whether they will overrule Roe against Wade immediately, but if they don't, they will at least gut it and gut it in the sense of saying that more and more and more restrictions on abortion, limiting the amount of time that a woman has to get an abortion and so forth are constitutionally permissible. Uh, so I think there the question is, is Roe against Wade going to be overruled or gutted? I don't see any possibility of a better outcome from the pro choice perspective than gutting. Religious freedom, when I was in law school, when you were in law school, John, people would have talked about a wall of separation between church and state. Over the intervening years with a more conservative court, what has happened is that anything that looked remotely like a wall has crumbled in various ways. And now, as long as the government provides funding to a group of organizations that includes non-religious as well as religious organizations, the government can funnel money to religious schools, religious hospitals, and so forth. So that's one big crumbling. But here's the big looming issue. And if you'll Forgive me for taking a minute or two to explain this. I find it just so fascinating. The question that the court is going to consider is the question of when, whether when the government enacts a law that says absolutely nothing about religion, but in an even-handed way requires or forbids some conduct that people have a religious reason to want to either engage in or refrain from. Does there need to be an exemption exemption to the neutral law for those religious people? So that was convoluted. Here's one nice, clean uh, example going back to 1990. A state has a law that forbids the use of peyote, which is a mildly hallucinogenic. I never touched it in college. <laughs> I promise. I, You're a witness to that. I, 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 on that, I am sure you are credible, but I think you perhaps <laughs> want to leave it at peyote. Um, so prohibition against peyote use, does there need to be an exception for members of the Native American church who believe that peyote use is a sacrament? In an opinion in 1990, when people are thinking about demands for religious exemptions as the kinds of demands that are going to be made by minor religious groups, Justice Scalia wrote an opinion for the court saying, 
that the Constitution's free exercise clause does not require exceptions to generally applicable laws for people who have religious motivations to want to violate those laws. In 1990, that was the conservative position. You don't make a lot of liberty-based exemptions to generally applicable law. Today, the political valence of this issue has flipped by 180 degrees. So today, who are the groups coming before the Supreme Court and demanding exemptions from generally applicable laws? The groups coming before the Supreme Court are religious conservatives who want exemptions from laws that do such things as forbid discrimination against gays and lesbians. And so now where the people claiming the exemptions are religious conservatives claiming to be beleaguered minorities, there is a strong, there is lots of reason to think the Supreme Court may be on the verge of overruling this Scalia opinion of 30 years ago with the conservatives having flipped from in the Scalia era, opposing the idea of a constitutional demand for exemptions to today in the modern era, yes, there is likely to be recognized a new constitutional right to exemptions from laws that interfere with religiously motivated conduct in parenthesis by religious conservatives. But I don't know that that's going to happen. That's my prediction. Well, Dick, I want to thank you very much. I can understand why you won the Teacher of the Year Award so many times. I could listen to you speak all afternoon, and you have exponentially increased the respectability of this podcast. So uh, <laughs> thank you very much. I also want to just tell the listeners, uh, John is always too modest to say this, but John and, and Dick went to um, undergrad together at Yale University, and I had a whole list of questions I was going to ask, but John paid me a lot of money not to ask him, so uh, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respect that deal. Can um, we have but, one more question, Mike? Oh, I just by all means, one John. more question for sure. Dick, and this is just a kind of a completely different area. I know you were a clerk on the court many years ago, and I know things have changed in terms of how the justices communicate with each other, email and the like, but can you give us any little insight as to how the justices come together to discuss significant decisions and how they come to a decision? And it may be different today, but is there a lot of interaction or not? Great. Yeah, so Great I question. clerked a very long time. Uh, ago. Uh, I clerked in 1981, 1982 for Justice Lewis Powell. And in that year, I was actually surprised at how very little informal communication there was among the justices. The formal communication, in one sense, occurs in two venues. The first venue is during the oral argument in the case, when the justices tend to ask very argumentative questions aimed, I think, more at persuading their colleagues or signaling to their colleagues how they think the case should be decided than actually hoping to elicit a helpful response from the lawyer. So then after the case is argued, the second opportunity for formal exchange comes when the justices meet in what is called conference. They go into a room with just the nine of them. Now they're doing it by Zoom. 
and nobody else is there. And they go around the table, beginning with the chief justice and then going uh, in the order of seniority, in which the justices simultaneously announce and explain their tentative decisions about how they're going to vote in the case. And so what's striking about this process is deliberation, collective deliberation does not precede the vote. So Chief okay. Justice Roberts might say, I've thought about this case and I vote that the plaintiff wins for the following reasons. So now Roberts's vote cast. Uh, and then Clarence Thomas would go and Clarence Thomas would say, I vote for the defendant. I don't know what I was thinking. I guess I was thinking about, of a, of a, if it's a criminal case, I would expect uh, Clarence Thomas never to be with the defendant. But I guess if it's a civil, <laughs> it's a civil case, he could be. So you'd say, I vote for the defendant for, for the following reasons. So that by the, you can have five votes cast before four of the justices have ever spoken. And at that wow. point, when they participate in the formal part of the initial deliberation, it will look like the die uh, is cast. Uh, then the justices, I, I should have said three stages. That's the circulation of written opinions because the votes cast at conference are all only tentative and justices can change their minds after they've read the opinions. But that tends not to happen very much. And so in the year that I was there, it was, uh, as I say, surprised at how little collective deliberation occurred before the wow. tentative casting of votes, and then surprised by how relatively little the justices talked to each other in an informal way afterwards. It was a highly formal process. And then if you'll forgive me, I, I know I'm talking too long. I don't know that that is still the way that they do business, but I don't think it's probably terribly dramatically different either. Thank you. That's very interesting. Just wanted to ask that one more question. Mike. Oh, no, I'm glad you did. And uh, thank you again. It's just been a, a wonderful afternoon, and I don't think it could have been any more timely for us uh, to have this podcast episode now. If anybody has any questions about this podcast, please direct them to the CTLA office. Our website is uh, cttriallawyers.com. Is that right, Katie? I see you just came on. Did I get the website correctly? cttriallawyers.org. Oh, .org. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we look forward to seeing you on our next episode. Thank you. Thank you, Dick. Okay, thank you. Thank you for joining us on Pod Ipsa Locator. The number to contact the CTLA is 860-522-4345. Their website is located at cttriallawyers.org.